Good morning, friends. So good to see you. If you will, grab a seat and grab your Bibles. My name is Josh. I'm one of the ministers here. If this is your first time with us at Clear Creek, welcome to the church family. You are here on a really good day because today is our celebration Sunday as a church. Every year we take a few moments, one Sunday a year, to kind of go, yay God, in a very intentional way, talk about the previous year, and then also look about what God may be doing in us and around us here in this coming year. So, first off, today we are in part five of our series, Field Guide to the Bible. So, we'll be on page number 44 in your journal. This is on page 44. And in the Bibles, we're going to begin on page 9. Page 9, Genesis chapter 12. We'll kind of hopscotch 12, 15, and 22 today. Because today, we're in week five of Field Guide to the Bible. It's just a big overview of the story of Scripture because we believe it's important that every person who follows Jesus be able to study the Scriptures for themselves. And so today we're, we're going to kind of do a quick walkthrough of a very, 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 very famous individual's life. But before we get there, let's kind of go back to where we've been. Here's the big check mark of our story of Scripture. So it begins with the creation. God makes everything good. Man and woman, Adam and Eve, all's great. Then Satan, dressed as a snake, comes into the garden, tempts Adam and Eve, and they sin, they fall. And the world begins to spiral out of control. And it gets worse and worse and worse until finally God, as we looked at last week, says, I'm going to destroy the world. I'm going to wash the world clean with a flood. We're going to get rid of the sin. But in his grace, he doesn't destroy all people. He chooses a man named Noah and his wife and their three sons and their sons' wives. And they will be the new restart to creation, the new Adam and Eve. And so he builds the ark, and the animals come in, and the animals come out after the flood. And everything, we think, oh, it's going to be okay. And it is for a chapter. I'm like, they just make it through one chapter, and then everything blows up again. Noah sins. His sons sin. And sin continues to permeate the world. And from generation to generation, the curse continues to go. And it tells us that the story's not over, that no mere human can fix the problem of the human heart. And so here's a beautiful thing that you need to know is whenever God sees the world beginning to spiral out of control, when the story begins to break down, what we see is that God always steps in. He corrects the story and he sometimes will use a person, a family, a group to course correct. And today he's about to do that because after Noah, we we have many, many, many years pass. And we don't know how long all of it, but there's this period that it passes until we come to this man that God chooses, a man named Abraham. Have you heard of Abraham? Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. Do you know this guy? If you do, did you grow up? Just real quick, how many of you grew up and you know the song Father Abraham? Anyone in here? How many of you are really hoping I don't lead us in a verse of Father Abraham? Yeah, okay, don't worry, we're not going to. But Father Abraham, he's the beginning of God's plan through a group that will become known as the Israelite nation. Now, when you zoom in on his life, What you'll see is right here at the beginning of it, he becomes the starting point of the next period. So if you're writing down your notes up there in the period section, you want to write this down. This is the period of the patriarchs. Why patriarch? Because that is a reference or a word that refers to a father. And Abram is the father. I say Abram and Abraham. Those are his two names. He starts off as Abram, then Abraham. And so Abraham is the father of of many, many people who become the Israelite nation, and then we who are spiritually brought into the family, the spiritual family of Israel, we would also consider him our spiritual forefather. Now, we call him father because, write this down, this is the summary of the whole story of Abraham, because Abraham 
is called by God. God called him to be the father of a people who will represent God to the world. He chooses Abraham to be the father of a people who will represent God to the world. That quote or that summary is actually from a wonderful book by a man named Max Anders. But I love that statement. It's so succinct. That is the story of Abraham's life. So, I want to show you a little map. How many of you like maps? doesn't matter. We're going to show it to you anyway. So here's a map. And this is the story. This is the ancient Near East. We looked at this space last week with Noah. And so God shows up to this man named Abram. He finds him living in the biggest, most advanced city at the time. It was called Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, look, I don't know why it was called Ur. It's a silly name. I get it. But it probably got them out of a committee meeting a lot faster. One guy's like, what should we call our town? The other one's like, Ur. The other guy's like, sure, sounds great. And they're done. Okay, I I don't know how they came up with it, but it's Ur of the Chaldeans. And God comes to this guy named Abraham in this city. And he says, I'm going to choose you. Now, why did he choose Abraham? Was it because Abraham was awesome? Say no. No. It's because of God's grace. God's choice, God's goodness. And so God goes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. This is on page 9 of your Bibles if you're using one of our worship Bibles. But Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. I want you to see the story of Abram. It goes like this. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country. Now think about what you would do if God said this to you. If you've never met this God before, he just shows up to you and he says, hey, go somewhere. What would you do? He says, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. God doesn't even show him where he's going to go. He doesn't tell him where he's going to go. In fact, look at this route that he's about to take. That's the route Abraham probably took. 1,200 miles. You say, why didn't he go straight across? Well, there's a giant desert there. Not real safe. You have bandits. You have no water. You have no food. So he goes along the river up to the north, stays in Haran. There's up in the very top region of that before he curves back down toward Canaan. But he says, go. And Abraham goes. He doesn't even tell him. But notice what he says. I love this. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. We'll come back to that in a moment. Verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all people on the earth will be blessed through you. Verse 4. So Abram went. So? So he went? I mean, think about the level of faith of saying, okay, I don't know what's coming, but I will do what you are telling me to do, 1,200 miles. I would have loved to have heard the thought process in Abram's mind, wouldn't you? He doesn't give it, though. I mean, really, as faithful as Abraham is, you know who I'm most impressed with in this story? His wife, Sarah. I mean, he gets the voice of God. She just gets the voice of her husband. Ladies, come on. Your husband says, I heard a voice, and that voice told me we're going to move. And I don't know where, but we're just going to leave. How many of you are like, absolutely oh head of the household she does now watch what happens next this is amazing as they went as the lord had told him and lot went with him Uh oh foreshadowing abram was 75 years old when he set out from haran now listen god doesn't always pick the youngest the fit and the ready sometimes he picks the comfortable and says move this means it's never too late, friends. It doesn't matter how old we get. It's never too late to obey today. Verse 5. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all their possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. And they arrived there. Now, there's a whole lot of story we're not getting in these verses. So skip now to verse 7, one verse down. Verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So Abram 
built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Here's what you need to know. Faith is a journey, and God teaches lessons along the way. And I just want us to look at three lessons in three chapters or three moments of Abram's life. The first lesson actually comes, if you will go to this next slide, it comes in this beautiful little verse, verse 2. Because in verse 2, God says, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. In other words, God blessed Abram to bless the world. God blessed Abram to bless the world. Have you ever considered the fact that when God wants to bless someone, he often does it through the hands of another person? God rarely says, oh, you're, you're in need of financial resources, and so he drops money bags out of the sky. Now listen, if he wants to do that in my life, praise God, I am open to your generosity, Lord. But isn't it interesting that when we need something from the Lord, how he often does it through the hands of other people? He blesses us to bless others. He blesses others to bless us. God is a God who wants to bless us, and he wants to invite us into the process of being a blessing. So when you say, God, I need a raise, does he just drop money bags out of the sky? Nope. Instead, you get a raise from your boss. He says, hey, your work has been exceptional, or hey, we just did a really good job this last quarter. We want to bless our employees, and so you get a raise. So God's gift through your boss. Or you say, God, I am discouraged. I need encouragement. Does God show up next to your bed in the morning and say, hey, it's all right, I'm with you? Now again, that would be amazing. That's not how he works in my life. How does he work in my life? I get a phone call. Someone says, hey, God put you on my heart. I just want you to know I love you. I'm proud of you. I'm praying for you. Is there anything you need? In other words, God blesses us so we can be a blessing to others. And pay attention to this. Sharing our blessings keeps us alive spiritually. Did you know that? Sharing our blessings actually keeps us alive spiritually. I know it's really hard to see, but do you see this Dead Sea on the map up here? Everyone say yes if you see it. You see it? Okay, great, great, great. Now, why is it called the Dead Sea? Let me give you a couple interesting facts. The Dead Sea is the lowest point in the world. Lowest, below sea level. It is known as the Dead Sea for a couple reasons. Number one, it has an incredibly high salt content. 34% salt content. Friends, that is 10 times as much salt as what you swallow when you're in the Atlantic Ocean. You know, you get a little sip and you're like, this is 10 times that amount. There's so much salt in it, sea life cannot live in the Dead Sea. In 2022, a group of us were in the Middle East. We got to go there. We went swimming in the Dead Sea. Here's the reality. You can't sink in the Dead Sea. There's too much salt. So we went out there to swim and we sort of bobbed around. I mean, it was fantastic, like a bunch of corks in the water. But here's what's so interesting about it. The Dead Sea. You think, why is it dead? You know, to its north, there's this river. It's called the Jordan River. The Dead Sea is constantly being fed, get this now, fresh water from the Jordan River, flowing from the north down into the Dead Sea. You say, so how is it, if it is consistently receiving blessings, how is it that it is dead? It's because it does not pass on what it receives. It stays and it stagnates. Do you understand that Christians, that people who want to live fulfilling lives are those who receive the gifts of God, enjoy them, and then pass them on to others? This is why Jesus said it is better to give than to receive. Actually, he doesn't say that, does he? He says it is more blessed 
to give than to receive, that as we receive those blessings and pass them on, we enjoy the blessings of God more. Do you get this, church? Are we kind of tracking together? And so this is the first story that we see. God sends him, he gets there, and everything's great, except there's a problem. He doesn't have any kids. How do, you, how do we know and how many of us understand that he will not be able to have a family if he doesn't have any kids? And so Abram's there. He's been in Canaan. He begins to travel around the area. He goes down to Egypt for a period of time. And then time has passed. Go back one more. He comes back to this place and God shows up because Abram's like, God, God, in chapter 15, he's like, God, where, where are my kids? And God says, hey, Abram, I want to give you a little, a little visual illustration And so he says, come on outside with me, will you? And so then he says, here are all the stars in the sky. Go ahead and try to count them. Now listen, when you and I hear that, this is what we see. Go ahead and now put that up if you don't mind. When I say count the stars, I'm like, well, that's not hard. There's like 12. See, like there's one, there's two. I mean, maybe on a good night, that's what I can see. But friends, that's not what Abraham saw. This is what Abraham saw. When God says count the stars, he's like, go ahead, get started. I can wait. And Abram starts, he's like, okay, one, two. And he gets up yelling, 833, 830. Oh, no, I lost count. Where is it at? And he has to start all over. See, God is making this visual picture. He's saying, Abram, I want to bless you more than you can imagine. I want to give you more than you can think of. See, for you and me, here's what you need to know. God has a bigger vision for your life and my life than we often have for ourselves. Oh, I can see a way that maybe God wants to bless me and bless those through me. And God goes, have you any idea if we could just see with God's eyes what he wants to do in and through us, I think it would take our breath away, family. Some of us are living smaller lives, not because God wants to give you less, but because we are not seeing what God wants to do through us. And so he shows in this great picture. And Abram, there's this incredible passage. I wish we had more time to go into it today. We just don't. But in verse 5, look at this. Genesis 15, 5. Then... He said, so shall your offspring be. And then in verse 6, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord, and God credited it to him as righteousness. This is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. Abram was called righteous because he believed. Now listen, righteous, this is on your notes, righteous simply means being all right in God's sight. You're Righteous when you are all right in God's sight. So how do you become righteous? You have faith. Now faith in God is not simply thinking something about God. Faith is acting upon that belief. It is doing something with it. Let me give you an example. Um, Most of us have probably not been to the country France. But most of us would believe that there is such a place as France. But here's the reality. We all believe it. But it has not changed our lives because at no point this week did you start doing something and go, ooh, I better not. There's a France. Or you never started to say something and go, I better not. There's a France. Why? You can believe something without it changing the way you live, right? This is why if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, it's the great chapter on faith. One of the interesting things is every time there's a statement of faith, it is always followed by a verb, a doing word. In faith, verb. In faith, verb. In faith, verb. In other words, Abram's faith, what God said, you are now right in my sight, was not that he thought something new about God, but that his thinking led him to doing. So friends, here would be my question. Is your thinking leading you to doing, or are you content with simply thinking? 
Faith is saying, I will change my life. I will focus it in the direction God is calling. And then we have this interesting moment because Abram's like, okay, I get it. I believe it. But could you give me something to reassure me that this is really going to happen? And so look at what happens in chapter 15, verse 8. Genesis 15, 8 says this, But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of this land? So the Lord said to him, and now, now this is very strange, I'll explain in a moment. Bring me, the Lord says, bring me a heifer. Thank you, God, I feel so much better. Why a heifer? He goes on, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Now, okay, this is weird. Can we all disagree? This is a weird little statement, okay? This is one of the most important moments in all of the Bible, so pay attention if you will. Abram asked God, how do I know that you are a promise-keeping God? And God says, butcher some animals for me. Because, come on, parents, what good parent doesn't say that to their child when their child says, how can I trust you, Dad? I mean, how many of you parents are like, your kid goes, Daddy, how do I know that I can trust you? And you say, go get the pet gerbil, sweetheart. I mean, what is this? What's going on here? Here's what's going on. And Abraham got this. We don't get this because we're not in his time, but he understood this. God was about to make a covenant with Abram. And actually, in the Hebrew, it's not make, but rather the actual Hebrew is God was about to cut a covenant with Abram. Here's what's going on. When you have a covenant with someone, you would take some animals. One, two, three, didn't matter the number, but you take animals. And you'd cut them in half. It was a very bloody thing. And you'd lay the halves on either side. Often they would do it on a rock with a bowl shape in between. And so the blood would drain. I'm not trying to be graphic here, but you need to understand this. It would drain into the bowl. And then what would happen is the two parties who were making the covenant would take turns. And they would walk between the halves through the blood as it splattered on them. And what they were saying is, I promise to do what we're talking about. And if I don't fulfill my promise, then may what was done to these animals be done to me. That's what a covenant is. Do you understand that? It's saying, if I don't do what I said, then may what's happened to these animals, may it be done to me. God is cutting a covenant with Abraham. He is making a great big promise. And here's the second point. Write this down. God is a God of covenants not contracts. God is a God of covenants, not contracts. So what is a contract? A contract says, if you do your part, I'll do my part. But if you don't do your part, then I don't have to do my part, right? So I can, if you break the contract, I don't have to fulfill it. But this contract, this unilateral covenant, rather, God says, I promise. And I'm going to keep my promise no matter what you do. Because God is not a God of contracts. He is a God of covenants. A covenant is a promise. It's a, no matter what you do, I promise to. No matter what you do, I promise to. And, and, and you all, if you've ever been through a marriage ceremony, if you've gotten married, you've made a covenant with someone. Haven't you, right? You make those vows in sickness and in health till death do us part. What are you saying? I'm in this no matter what you do. There's no clause that says, but if you do that, then I won't do this, is there? In the vows, there's never a statement. If you don't do, then I won't. See, that would be a contract, but a covenant says, I do because I love you. And God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Why? Because a covenant, a promise, reflects his character. 
That he is the God who says, I do regardless of what you do. How many of you are thankful that we serve a God of covenants, not a God of contracts? I'm only here because I serve a God of covenants. Because I've messed up this week. I've gotten angry at my kids. I've been short with others. I've gotten unkind in this way. I've gotten frustrated. I've been fearful that are faithful moments. And God says, I promise, regardless. Now, this is what happens. This is very, very interesting. Verse 12, look at this. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Now, that's a Hebrew way of saying that Abram was scared to death. Why was he scared? Here's why. He realized something that I think if any of us pay attention to, we'd realize it too. Abram realized that if he walks between the pieces, if he goes through and says, I promise, and if I don't keep my promise, may what has been done to these animals be done to me. Abram realized something that every one of us realize about ourselves. We break our word all the time, don't we? Abram, if you go back and read chapter 14, he's already messed things up. He told a guy that his wife Sarah was not really his wife, but just some gal that he knew. That she, he was his sister. Why? He was scared that this man would kill Abram and take his wife. So Abram just goes, well, let's just cut out the middleman and let you take my wife anyway. He's a faithless man. And he knows if he goes through this, he is signing his death warrant. And this happens. This is amazing. Verse 17. Jump down to verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot. You might want to circle those two words. Smoking fire pot. And then this next word is so important. With, circle that. And then this next portion, a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. What in the world just happened? Here's what happened. As Abram is terrified about walking through the pieces of breaking a covenant that he knows he cannot keep, he sees two things go through the pieces. He sees a smoking fire pot, and then he sees a torch. Now, here's why this is significant. Throughout Scripture, fire represents God. Who does, or what does Moses see when he meets God? A bush that's on fire, correct? How does the Holy Spirit come on us in the book of Acts? As tongues of fire. When the Lord chooses to lead Israel through the wilderness at night, he does so by a pillar of fire. Are you seeing this? In Hebrews, we're told that God is a consuming fire. So what Abraham is seeing is physical representatives of God. And what he sees is he sees a smoking fire pot pass between the emblems. That's God. And now it's Abram's turn, and he's going, oh, no. And then he sees, though, it's not just that, because he sees it's not only the fire pot, but it says, with. And then comes a torch. Do you understand? God goes through the covenant twice. Abram, zero times. God goes through for himself. I will keep my promise to you, but Abram, I know you'll never keep your promise to me, so I'll go through the covenant, not just for myself, I will go through the covenant for you as well. I'll take on the penalty if you break your promise. I'll be the one who dies if you don't do what you say you're going to do. Do you understand? In Genesis 15, God signs Jesus' death warrant because he goes through on his behalf and on our behalf as well. And in that moment, Abram knows this is a God I can trust because he is taking the full weight of the promise on his shoulders. Third scene. 
Time passes. God keeps his covenant. He gives Abram a son. And they name the son, what do you, what's his name, church? Do you know? Isaac. It means laughter. Why? Because God always gets the last laugh, church. Doesn't matter what the world throws at you. God gets the last laugh. And Isaac is a beautiful boy. He grows up. He becomes a young man. He's probably in his teens, maybe even into his 20s or early 30s. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 22 and God comes to Abram. And this is the final scene we'll look at today in 22. This is the scene that you know if you know Abraham's story. God comes to him. And in verse 1 of chapter 22, we're told that God was going to test Abraham. Now listen, I want to be very clear. This was not to test him to produce faith. Rather, it was a test to see how much faith was already produced in Abram. Because remember, faith is a journey and God teaches us along the way. And so he comes to Abram and he's going to test him. And in verse 2 of Genesis 22, the Lord says this. He says, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Now, if you know anything about Father Abraham, this is the story that you know about. And the question is that we face is, will Abraham trust God with what he loves most? He has waited decades for a son. He has given a son. He loves his son. By the way, did you know that that word love right there in verse 2? That is the first time the word love is used anywhere in the Bible between a father and a son. He loves his son. And the question is, will he trust God with what he cherishes most? See, it's easy to trust God with things we don't care about. But do we trust God with the things that matter most to us? Are we willing to say, I trust you even with this thing? I don't know what that thing is for you. I know what it is for me. Do I trust God enough to say, all that I have, all that I am, I trust you with it? And he does. Because the very next verse it says, early the next day, he gets up and he goes. He takes his son, he takes some servants, and they begin a trek toward Mount Moriah. And it was a, it was a mountain range north of them. And there... As they're traveling, on the third day, we're told these words. This is verse 7. On the third day, they go up. They separate from the servants. And Isaac carries the wood on his shoulders. Abraham and Isaac continue up. And Isaac, to his father, says, Where, in verse 7, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And in verse 8 of chapter 22, Abraham answers, God himself will provide the lamb. He goes on, verse 9. Then, then he, Abraham, reached out his hand. So we, they get up to the place. And he took the knife to slay his son. Excuse me, that's verse 10. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, Abraham replied. Verse 12. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Verse 13. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over, took the ram, sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Here's the third and final point from his life. Is that Abraham learned, what I pray every one of us learns, is that God always provides. God always provides. God stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son and said that he, God, would provide the sacrifice. Now, now here, here's the problem with the story. I want to just be frank with you. The problem with the story is a few things. Number one, we ask the wrong questions. We're like, how could a good God ask such a thing? Let me explain something. The ancient Near East, this place in which they lived, it was common for gods to demand the life of children from their parents. This was not uncommon. What was uncommon was for a God to say, I do not demand that from you. In this moment, our God is saying, I am categorically different from every other God. 
that I'm a God of life. I'm the God of joy. I'm the God who gives. But there's something else that we miss here. See, we read this and we go, wow, what a faith-building story that Abraham would trust God. But here's what we miss. We miss all the facts, all the things that say this is not ultimately a story about Abraham or Isaac. This is ultimately a story about God will provide. And how do we know that? It's because every part of this story points to Jesus. Now, I know that's a shocker in church. We'd say it points to Jesus. Let me show you a few things as we finish our time this morning. Do you notice first off, they're to go to this place called Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah has an interesting history because centuries later there would be a man named David who would capture a city that is there on Mount Moriah and it would be renamed not Mount Moriah or a city there but rather Jerusalem. And then centuries, centuries, centuries later on that very same hill that Abraham took his son up to sacrifice. But God did not demand the sacrifice Another man would go up that same hill. His name is Jesus Christ. And on that mountain, he would be sacrificed in his place. But there's more here. I just want to show a few things to you. Verse 4, when it says that God saves, that, that on the third day, they go up the hill. And God does not demand Isaac's life. It's on the third day. Friends, what happens on the third day in the New Testament? Do you remember that in the same way that God saves Isaac from death on the third day, it's on the third day that he raises Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you see how this isn't about Isaac or Abraham? It's not about that father and son. It's about our heavenly father and his heavenly son. Let's keep going. Verse 6, we're told that Isaac carries the wood on his back up the hill to where he will be sacrificed. Who else carried the wood upon his back that he would then be sacrificed on the hill, church? Jesus Christ, he goes up the hill and he carries the weight of the wood that he would then be sacrificed on. Verse 9, Abraham binds and places Isaac on the altars. Now this is incredible. Jewish rabbis will tell us that every one of the words talking about the age of Abraham's son Isaac, that Isaac wasn't just a little dude, he wasn't just like a little guy, he was most likely late teens, 20s, or even in his 30s. Isaac did not have to die. He did not have to go there. He could have fought off his father. But Isaac willingly lays down his life. Church, Jesus tells us, no one takes my life. I lay it down. John 10. But unlike Isaac, who is set free, Jesus Christ took the nails. He took the blows. He took death so that you and I would not have to take death. But it's more than that. Can we just look at one more thing here? When God says, don't kill him. He looks up, Abraham looks up, and right over there is a ram caught in a thicket. What's a thicket? A thicket is a thorn bush. It's a briar patch. And we're told something very interesting that this ram is stuck in the bush, that the thorns are around its where? Its horns, its head. There would come a day on that very same hill, the Lamb of God would go to the cross with crown of thorns around his heads. Why? Because God always provides. Now, I don't know where you are this morning. I know some of you, because I hear your story, some of you are in incredibly dark places. You have been beaten up. And you feel like you've done nothing but sacrifice. You feel like God has left you high and dry, that you're in the wilderness, that the promises of God are going to die with your old age. And it is so easy in those moments to think, maybe, maybe I'm the exception to the covenantal promise that God will provide for me. But here's what I need you to understand. God is a God of covenants. He keeps his promises. He will always provide. How do we know that? Because on a hill far away, once called Moriah, a man named Jesus goes up on that hill and dies on the cross for you and for me. If God would not withhold his own son for, from you or me, 
do you think he's going to leave you to die on your own? Our God is the God of covenants. He will always provide. doesn't mean it's easy. But it does mean you're never alone. He will always provide. So, where are you this morning? I'm going to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes. We do this every week. Because it's one thing for me to share a few words from Scripture. More important than that is for you to have time with the Lord. So if you will, just bow your heads. I'll give you 30 seconds to share with Him where you are. Are you in a place where you're being called to take a next step? Would you ask Him to give you courage to take it? Perhaps that's into baptism, to follow Him in the waters. Or perhaps it's to be a part of a body of Christ, or maybe it's to share your faith with a friend, whatever it is, are you in that place? Maybe you're not in Genesis 12, but you're in Genesis 15, and you just need to be reminded that our God is a God of covenants, not of contracts, because you've sinned and you know what is in store for you, but God, he's a God who forgives. He's a God of covenants. Or maybe for some of us here, you are just in that place of sacrifice, and you go, I don't know if I can trust God. The God who provided on the mountain will continue to provide. Father, every heart is open to you now. We ask that in this place you will please give to us exactly what we need. I pray that you will give courage to my brothers and sisters and my friends in this room to move when you say move. For those who are wrestling with the guilt of sin and they're saying the consequence is death, I know it's death, would you remind them that in Christ Jesus the gift is grace because you are a covenant-making God. And for those in here who are in just the painful moments of life who just go, man, it hurts. Will God provide? I pray that the resounding word from Scripture is, as you did, you will, and you always will provide. We ask this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.